All right, well, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Nearing the end of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it's on page 1194 in the Pew Bible. Children, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. Any kids there, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, page 1194 if you're using a pew Bible. Every culture, every society has a religion. Uh, there's no such thing as an irreligious people. Even in an atheist culture, agnostic uh, government, uh, there's still a religious belief system. Uh, we put our trust in something. We put our faith and our beliefs in something. We look to something to understand what our lives are about. And I think one could make the argument that in American culture, uh, there are at least there are many gods that are worshipped, many things that are pursued. But I think there's at least probably two gods that reign over the rest of the American pantheon. And one of those gods we talked about a little bit last week, I think, is, is probably sex. Is one of the things that is way up there in America. The other one would be, I don't know, what do you think? Money. Yeah. That's good, because if you didn't answer money, my sermon would have got fouled up. Um, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, money. Uh, and uh, and it, that's, th- these two themes appear here together. Uh, sex and money are kind of the Zeus and the Hera of our Mount Olympus here in America, in some ways, among all the other things that we pursue and the other things we live for. And they both appear here in the text. Last Sunday we looked at chapter 13, verse 4, which was about... The purity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sexuality, the warning against sexual immorality. And this Sunday, we're looking at the next two verses, verses 5 and 6, that are all about uh, money and not loving money and honoring uh, God and, and being content with what God has given us. It's interesting how many times these two themes appear together in the Bible, that there's warnings associated with both of them. So, for instance, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. So he puts them together. What's the sixth, or rather seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What's the eighth commandment? Do not steal. You know, it's interesting how these, these themes go together. And I guess if you think about it, both lust and greed are kind of just manifestations of the same inner dynamic. They're both a sort of selfish grasping after something. It's sort of a selfish desire to obtain and possess and control something we don't have. Whether that something is a person or that something is a possession, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, you know, applies to all kinds of things. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, do not covet your neighbor's uh, house or, or anything that he has. So covetousness seems to be the, 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 uh, the ground from which these other sins emerge. So we want to look at this other deity today, money. We looked at sex last week. Let's look at money today. It's verses 5 and 6. Let me just read the verses. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be confident with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So when we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
So let's look at these two commands here in verse 5. The first, is, the first of the two commands is keep your lives free from the love of money. Now you see that phrase there, free from the love of money? That's six words in English. It's kind of cool. In Greek, it's just one word. Uh, so it, it's a cool word. In fact, if I could just kind of like put on my Greek nerd hat for a minute. And th- there's an interesting, fun little word here. It's a phil argoros. A phil argoros. Okay, which is a compound word that has three components to it. There's a, and then phil, and then argoros. Argoros means literally silver, or money. So it's money, but it's silver. Phil means, you guys should be able to guess this one. What's phil? Love, Philadelphia, philanthropy, right? So it's phileo, the word for love. So it's the love of money, phil argoros, the love of silver. But it's a phil argoros, and a is a is what we call an alpha privative, which means it, it's an alpha at the beginning of the word that negates the word. We have the same grammatical instruction in English. Atypical. Asymmetrical. So it's loving money, ah, loving money, not loving money. So, so it says, really in Greek it says, let your life, let your, um, your manner of life, if we were translating this in the street version, it would be like, when you roll, <laughs> uh, don't love money. Just as, as you think about how your life is, don't be a person who's obsessed with the love of money. So the problem isn't money per se. The problem is the love of money. You know, money in and of itself, I mean, what's money? It's, it's just a thing. It's, it's kind of artificial. It's, it's something we've created as a means of exchange within an economy. It's sort of an artificial construct. Money isn't good or bad. It's just money. Uh, the problem is the love of money. The question isn't how much do you or I have in our bank account, what's in our bank account. The question is what's in our hearts? What is it that we love and treasure and cherish? I love all the hymns and songs we sang this morning about treasuring God, God being our treasure, um, God being enough for us. This is the idea. What is it that we love and treasure? So the problem is the love of money. The love of money can affect you whether you're rich or whether you're poor. You know, Someone who's poor, they love money, they want more money, they get desperate, and so they're like, all right, I'm going to buy some scratch tickets. The Powerball, Mega Millions, Jackpot, whatever is up to $200 million. I'm going to buy some. Maybe I can get rich quick that way. And, or maybe they listen to a TV preacher who preaches prosperity gospel. I don't know if you've heard the prosperity gospel. It's the basic idea that if you just have enough faith, God will give you whatever it is that you want and whatever you ask for. You know, it's like, Jesus wants you to get the lack off your back, you know, kind of message. Um, rich people can be affected by the love of money. You're like, why, are they, why do they love money? they got money. Like, well, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a heart condition. You know, it's like, I, I need more money. And so the grip tightens on the money we have. And we want to earn more. We want to invest more. We want to get more. And then when we get more, we use that in order to get more from what we have. And so the principle is never touched. The principle just grows and grows and the interest keeps coming in. And maybe if we give a little bit, we give out of interest, but we can't touch this huge nest egg that we're building and building. I mean, we've heard people say, maybe we've even said, one of my major goals in life is to make a pile of dough. People say that. That's one of my life ambitions is to make a ton of money so I can retire at age, whatever, 44, and golf for the rest of my life. How is that not the love of money? How is that not an obsession with wealth? So as Christians, we're kind of in a funny position because we need money, we use money, we work, we have to pay our bills. It's good to work. 
Uh, and yet, we're not supposed to love money. So it's kind of a funny tension. In fact, I think you can even push it further. I was just kind of thinking about this. I think that if you follow a biblical work ethic, it's more likely that you'll gain money over time. You know, if you're honest, if you're hardworking, if you uh, do everything as unto the Lord, you know, all things being equal, probably chances are you're going to do better because people will look at you and say, hey, that's a good employee. They're honest. They're hardworking. There's something different about that employee. Or, or if you're running a business and you're honest, if you're like an honest mechanic, you know, or you're an honest broker, I mean, pe- that word gets out about that. And, and so I think over time, it's kind of funny, I think a, a biblical work ethic, all things being equal, might even tend to increase your wealth in some ways. And yet, we're not supposed to be seeking money, we're not supposed to be loving money as Christians. The love of money isn't our goal. And so we, we need to be free from this love and this desire. It's like what Paul says in Timothy. Turn over to 1 Timothy. Put a bookmark here. We'll come right back. Just back a few pages. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 1177. So just back a few pages. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6.6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Well, I haven't gotten there yet. If I have food and clothing, I'll be happy. Wow. That's real contentment. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap. Into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Once the desire for money becomes the driving impetus in my decision-making and thinking, I am just open to all kinds of problems and errors. It's a dangerous way to go forward. So he says, be careful of the love of money. Verse 10, one of the famous verses people know, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That verse is often misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. Misquote. It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Look at this. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. A love of money can take you away from Jesus. And it's like, well, I've I got to make more. We need more. I can, I can do this job today. I know it's Sunday, but uh, you know, and we don't even have time anymore to worship God for like one hour a week with God's people. We don't even have time to go to a Bible study for an hour and a half a week to worship God and to be built. We just keep chasing that dollar. And the next thing you know, you just, it happens slowly and gradually, but you find yourself out of fellowship with God's people wandering away from the Lord. And so money can draw us away from God. It's just a really powerful force. So the question is, do we love money? What do we love? Do we treasure God? I was thinking about those, remember those Visa commercials? They were like a year or two ago. I didn't really understand them. I never really understood what was going on in this commercial. Some guy would be paying for something, and then all these like barbarians and pirates and Vikings would come out. I still don't understand what was going on in those commercials. And then the guy would be like, oh, I have a Visa card. And then all the Vikings would be like, oh, you know, they were going to pillage him or something. And then at the end of the commercial, the Viking goes, what's in your wallet? Right? Well, God is not asking us what's in our wallet. That's what we're thinking about. What's in my wallet? How much do I have? God is saying, what's in your heart? What is it that we cherish and treasure above all else? What is it that we're seeking for that drives us? And God is calling us to treasure Christ above wealth and possessions. 
not to let the love of money drive us, even though we have to deal with money. Instead, like it says in Timothy, we're supposed to be content. content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Which takes us back to he- go back to Hebrews now, thirteen four five rather. That's the second command. The first is keep your lives free from the love of money. And then he says what? Be content with what you have. And so I think contentment is just kind of the other side of the coin of being free of the love of money. If you're free from the love of money, you can be content. Now, contentment, that's a great concept, to be content with something. Contentment is being able to say, enough. i got enough. I don't need more. I mean, if you want to give me more, whatever, but I don't need any more. I'm content. House is big enough. Car is great enough. Salary is fine. I'm content. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I got a good Benjamin Franklin quote. He said, contentment makes poor men rich and discontentment makes rich men poor. Contentment is a treasure to be able to get. And we don't get contentment by having more. We think, okay, to get content, I just need X amount of dollars in the bank. I need the nest egg to be so large and then I'll be happy and I'll be content. Like, really? Really? How do you know when you get there? You won't say, well, just a little bit more. Contentment is a rare gem. Once upon a time, there was a guy walking along the the pier. He was a rich man, and and he found this fisherman sitting by his boat. And the fisherman is just kind of sitting there looking out over the water, sort of the middle of the day. And the the rich sort of businessman said to the fisherman, he goes, why aren't you out fishing? The fisherman said, well, I caught enough fish for today. He said, what do you mean you caught enough fish? He goes, why don't you go out and catch more fish? You've got time left. And the guy said, well, why would I do that? He goes, so you could sell them and make more money, and then you could use that money to, like, you know, get some better nets and a better boat, and, and maybe you could go out to deeper waters because your boat's a little better, and maybe you could make some more money and then have a couple of boats. Maybe you could have a fleet that would work for you. And, and the, the fisherman said, why would I do that? He's like, well, so you could become rich, and then you could just sit down and enjoy your life. And the fisherman said, isn't that what I'm doing? <laughs> What does it take to be content? How much is enough? Do you have in your mind, do I have in my mind, sort of a mental picture of enough? Where I could say, no, that's enough. And discontentment is when, no matter what I I have, a little bit more is going to be enough. Discontentment wreaks havoc in our lives. It, It drives us onwards. It skews our priorities. You know, we talked about uh, marriage last Sunday. Um, Man, discontentment is a marriage killer. That that just ruins marriages. When when the wife is like, I need a bigger house. This kitchen is terrible. I want the bathrooms upgraded. You know, and constantly hammering on things she wants. When the husband is like, you know, I I got the 28-foot boat, but the 35, if I had the 35 with the cabin... And the galley, you know, or if I, had, if I went from the, the 38-inch to the 42-inch or whatever it is we'd want to upgrade toward, that, that sense of discontentment, just it, it changes marriages. It changes the focus of things. Uh, when children in a family are, are always clamoring for more clothes or more gadgets or more whatever, and they're never happy with what they have, you know, it just ruins relationships between parents and children. It's a destructive thing. And so the question is, are we content? Do we have enough? Why are we so discontent? Why are we always looking for more? 
And then, you know, I stepped back. As I was writing this sermon, I just kept thinking. I sort of stepped back from the whole thing. And I was thinking, how is it that we're so discontent in America? You know? Like, of all the six billion, six and a half billion people on earth, we live in, like, the top, you know, sliver of the good life compared to the rest of the world. It's amazing, this country we have. And yet we're discontent here. This was driven home to me when I got back from uh, Macedonia. You know, some of you know Jennifer and I, my wife and I went to Macedonia um, two weeks ago now on a mission trip to go teach the Bible there to some people. And it, it was a great trip, but, you know, you get a lot of takeaways from a mission trip. Man, one of our takeaways was, boy, we have it good in America. <laughs> and and uh, Macedonia is not a developing nation. I mean, they're fairly modern. But even compared to there, we're like, wow, this is great to be in America. It's like you, you step off the plane in America and you go... What recession? You know, what? Yeah, I know we're in a recession. The numbers tell us that. But you look around and you're like, what recession are we talking about here? You, you get off the plane and, and there's a health care crisis. We must overhaul health care. There's a health care crisis in America. And you step off the plane and you're like, really? You know, I'll tell you what. Don't get sick in Macedonia. You don't want to go to their hospitals. I'm not saying that as sort of a jingoistic American. That's what the Macedonians told me. They were like, you don't want to go to the hospital here. It's <laughs> like, wow. And, and in America, you, anyone, it doesn't matter whether you're a citizen or not, you just walk into a, an ER, you will be taken care of. That's the law. With the best health care on planet Earth. I mean, so yeah, there's problems and stuff, but I just think sometimes our sense of scale and proportionality is out of whack. And mine is out of whack. And you know, I, that was one of my takeaways when I went to Macedonia. Like, wow, the opportunities our children have here, kids there don't have. I mean, it's just... It's a different world. The sense of what we do with our time and our money and our entertainment is so different. I walk into Logan Airport and I think this airport is so modern and clean and amazing. It's like Logan Airport, E-Terminal, was nicer than any building I'd been in in Macedonia. You know, like Logan. I think of like Logan, like germs, people, (laughs) dirty. After Macedonia, you're like, oh, kiss the ground. This is so nice in Logan. What an amazing place this is. So your perspective gets changed. So, it, like my neighbor across the street, there's this guy across the street that I, I talk to sometimes, and he has this thing he always says. He goes, you know, Jeremy, we live in Disneyland. That's his thing. Another day in Disney. <laughs> it's true. We don't have to go to Disney. We're in Disney. This is Disney. Every day. You know, and we're like little kids. They're like they're in Disney and they're complaining because they didn't get enough cotton candy. We're the same way. We're discontent in Disney. What, why am I saying this? Because it, it, I think it proves that contentment is not about how much you have. The rest of the world looks to, at us and says, how can you possibly want more? How could you possibly be unhappy? And, and we're unhappy and we're discontent. Therefore, I conclude that my discontentment, my love of money, must not be about how much I have. It must be about something in my soul. The problem must not be my bank account or my net worth or my liquidity. My problem must be what's going on in here. What is it that I'm looking for? How then do you find contentment? How then do you cut the root of the love of money so that it withers? Unfortunately, the author goes on to tell us that. Not only does he give us the command, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content, but then he tells us the secret to finding that, which is at the end of verse 5. He says, because 
God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The key to being free from the love of money and being content whether you have a little or a lot is to look to God for your provision, your safety, your security, your hope, rather than looking at your circumstances. Because this is a relative moving target and our sinful hearts will always conclude we need a little bit more. But when God is my treasure, when Christ is my reward, and He is the one looking out for me, I know that He's taking care of me. This is a quote from somewhere else in the, in the Old Testament, and I'd like you to look at the original location of this quotation in Hebrews 13.5. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews 13.5. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I want to read the original quote because it's kind of interesting. In Deuteronomy 31, the original quote really doesn't have anything to do with money at all. So it's kind of a funny quotation. It's on page... Find my notes here. 201. Deuteronomy 31.1. Okay, quick context. The Israelites are at the edge of the promised land. They're about to cross in. Moses has finally got them there. And Moses says, I'm not going in with you. You're going to have to go by yourselves with Joshua. But you're not going to be alone. God is with you. Alright, so that's the context. So here's Moses' farewell speech to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 31.1 Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you should not cross the Jordan. You shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God Himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you. You will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them what He did to Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, whom He destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you. You must do to them all that I've commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. There's the quote. And then He says the same thing to Joshua. Look at the very end of verse 8. The Lord Himself goes before you and you'll be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So in the original context, it's, it's a message to the fearful Israelites who are about to go into the promised land. Moses is leaving them. They have a new leader, always a scary time of transition leadership, Joshua. And they've got to go in the promised land against the Canaanites who have walls, chariots, weapons, armor. The Israelites are just nomadic herders. And they're supposed to go in and conquer Canaan like with what? But they have something. They have a secret weapon. God is with them. Do not be afraid. I am with you, God says. And that's what the writer of Hebrews quotes. So now go back to Hebrews. Be content with what you have. Be happy with your money. Don't seek after money because God says, I will never leave you and never will I forsake you. Now again, isn't it funny that the original context isn't about money? I think what's happening here is the writer of Hebrews is getting down to the root problem. Like I said, there's a deeper problem here more than just money. There's a sin behind the sin. The the sin that we see is greed or covetousness or lust or whatever it is. But the real sin is deeper. The real sin is lack of trust in God. It's that I don't have faith that God can provide for me. I don't have faith that God can meet my needs. I don't trust that He is good and gracious. So, to meet my needs, I don't care what His Word says, I'm going to break 
cross out on my own, take possession of what I want. And if I have it, if I own it, if I control it, then I can be safe and I can take care of myself and provide for myself. And so I think greed is a kind of control power move where we grab something so that we can be our own gods, really. That's why Paul says greed is idolatry. It's fundamentally, at a deeper level, a rejection of the goodness of God. This is why Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be committed to one and despise the other. Then what Jesus say? You cannot love both God and money. The love of money is a religion just as much as the worship of Christ is. And so I have to choose my master. I have to choose my God. Will it be God who says, never will I leave you or forsake you, or will it be something in this life, a person, a possession, something that I hold on to and say, this is my happiness, this is my emotional stability, this is my security against a recession, whatever. We grab onto those things. Or do we say, God is the one who's for us. Brothers and sisters, trust God. He will never leave you or forsake you. God is not experiencing any recession. God has everything. And, and if these Old Testament folks could trust God, how much more so can we who have Jesus trust God? God sent His own Son to die on a cross to wash away my sins and save me. I mean, what else do I need to know that God is for me? It's like poker. God is all in. <laughs> and there's no gamble. He is going to win. He is all in. He sent His Son Jesus for me to save my soul. What else do I need to know that God is for me? You know, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? So if you have Jesus, you really have everything, ultimately. God says, I am for you. I'm committed to you. God has sent His own Son to shed His blood for my soul. I know He's for me. So why am I afraid? What am I so worried about? Brothers and sisters, if we could hear Jesus in heaven right now interceding for us, you would not fear an army of 10,000 men. You would fear nothing if you knew what Jesus was praying for you right now. If you knew how much Christ loved us and died for us, if we could grasp that and really let the amazing gift of the cross sink into our souls, if we would really believe the Gospel we would be so confident and fearless. If we knew what God was saying to us in Christ, we would be able to say, Hebrews 13.6, So you say, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God says, I will never leave you. His people say, I am not afraid. And so it's because of who God is, what He's done in Christ, that we can have confidence that God will meet our needs, including, but not limited to, money. But money is really just one part of it. All of our needs. We're free then to know that God is for us and He's never going to leave us. We're free to give and we're free to serve. And that's the great thing. It's not just freedom from fear. But once we're free of the fear of money and the love of money and all that, we're then liberated to serve other people. Once I'm no longer kind of just focused inwards on my needs, my wants, what I think I have to have to be happy, and I say, ah, Christ is my treasure. 
Christ is enough. Then what happens is you can open up, you can bloom, and you can let your life be poured out for others without fear. Because now I'm not like, well, I've got to take care of myself over here. You can be impractical. You can do things that don't make sense. You know? Because God's got my back. God has poured Himself into me. I can pour myself out to others. He's going to provide for me. And we can open our arms up and be servants and conduits for the grace of God in the world. We can't be conduits for the grace of God as long as we're not open to His grace, as long as we're closed in around ourselves. But once we say, God is for me, Christ has died for me, then I can pour myself out for the good of others. Look at what, just one more text. I know we've been flipping around a lot. You've got to see this one. Luke chapter 12. Look what Jesus said. Luke chapter 12. Verse 32. It's on page 1031. Jesus is preaching to His disciples about don't be afraid, don't worry. Look how God feeds the sparrows. Look how God clothes the lilies. Aren't you more important than those? What are you worried about? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And then I love verse 32 of Luke 12. Do not be afraid, little flock. For the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's not just Jesus' blood that was shed for you, but with that comes the whole kingdom of God. The great rock from Daniel 2 that's filling the earth is your retirement plan. That's what my retirement plan. Not a 401k. It's, that is my retirement plan. The kingdom of God. I got this home. The streets are made of gold. You should see it. I can't wait to see it. That's what God has for me. He's given us the kingdom. So then, verse 33, notice the logic. Therefore, what? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, do you see the logic? It's not, hey, be a, a do-gooder and sell your possessions and show people how spiritual you are. No, 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 no. It's, I have the kingdom. I have Christ. Everything is mine in Christ. So because of what God has done for me, because of the gospel, I'm free to give to others. Not, I'm going to give to others to show myself to be a good person and gain God's favor. God has already shown me His favor. It's turning around now and pouring myself out to others. It's the gospel flowing into me and then out of me to other people. I was uh, talking to a brother this week. I don't want to embarrass Mark Lundquist, so I'm just going to <laughs> just leave it anonymous. But um, this brother I was talking to is a builder, and he's a contractor, and, and he was just sharing with me. He, you know, we were just talking about ministry, and he was just sharing that one of the ministries he feels God has laid on his heart is building homes for people who you know, need a place to live. So like during the Hurricane Katrina uh, thing, you know, he... Some of you remember we did Operation Rebound here and built some homes down there, and he was kind of spearheading that. He went down about six times down to Mississippi to help build some, some homes for people who had their lives literally wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, and, and he went down there, and, and so it was great. But the thing that was encouraging to me was he said, you know, you always worry about, like, how, how's this going to work out practically? Like, how's the money going to come together? How's this? And he says, it's, been, it's amazing. And this is why I tell the story. He was saying how every time I went, God took care of the money somehow. You know, I went to Macedonia. I still had a paycheck. When you're a builder and you go on to Mississippi, who's paying your paycheck? You're not working, so you're not getting money. But he just went. And he said it was amazing. God took care of me. 
He goes, it would be something weird, like a check in the mail, or I overpaid on my, uh, you know, workers' comp insurance, and then I got a refund back, and, you know, just weird things would happen. He says, but God always took care of me. And I thought, you know, what a great story. When you trust God, and you say, okay, fine, I'm going to use what gifts God's given me to minister to others, God provides in miraculous ways. It was such a great testimony. Has God been whispering to your soul about something He wants you to do? But you've been afraid to do it because you're way too practical. And you're like, I can't do that. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. You know, maybe God, maybe it is building or something like that. Or maybe what God's whispering into your soul is, is you have a heart for the elderly. You know? Huge mission field right here in Hingham. It's called Harbor House. People just there, ready for someone to visit them. Maybe you have a heart for the homeless. Maybe your heart is for people in your neighborhood. And, and you've had this idea, like, I'd like to have them over. I'd like to do this or that. But you've been scared. Like, oh, that's not practical. What are people going to think? Maybe you're like one of those people who every time the, you know, those TV commercials comes on and there's some starving kid and it's like, you know, for just the price of a cup of coffee a day. You could give this kid a new life. And, and you're, but when you see those commercials, you're not just sort of touched, but you're like, I need to go there. You're just, and, but you're like, I could never go there. I'm just, eh. Like, maybe God's put something in your heart to do. And, and you're not doing it because you're afraid. Like, well, what? that's so impractical. How could that work out financially? So rather than God directing our lives, it's all about money. And maybe God's calling you to just trust Him and have a mission that He wants you to have. I don't know what it is. What, what is it that God has been whispering into your soul that He wants you to do for the glory of Christ? Maybe what God has been whispering for you to do is just to give your life to Christ, but you've been resisting. That's, a, that's the very first step. Everything I've said in this sermon assumes that you know Jesus. That's the assumption. But if you don't know Jesus, that's the first step. You know, being a Christian is about following Christ and trusting in Him for your salvation. You can be born, baptized, catechized, confirmed, married, buried in a church and go to church regularly and still not be a Christian. Do you know that? Did you know a pastor or a priest can't forgive your sins? Did you know that? Do you know the sacraments don't magically make you a Christian? How do you become a Christian? You put your faith in Christ. What did Jesus say to the men, the fishermen? Talking about fishermen again. What did He say? Follow Me. He didn't say, believe in a higher power of your choosing. He said, follow Me. Get up and come with Me. Where are we going, Jesus? Just got to follow Me. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let's go. And they went. And so being a Christian is about knowing Christ personally, having your sins forgiven through the cross, and then living a life of obedience to Christ. Coming together, then, then, then you come into the church. Not to become a Christian, but once you are a Christian, you become part of the church. But then we go out of the church to be His conduits of grace in the world. And maybe that's the call God has put on your heart. He's been calling you to Himself, but you've been resisting, resisting, resisting. Same fear. What will happen? This is so impractical. What's going to happen to my life? And I just want to encourage you today to let go of your life, to confess your sin, to cry out to Christ as your Savior, and to begin the adventure and the journey of living by faith. Let's pray.
Lord, we love you and we thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, we pray that you would give us faith to believe what your word says. That we would look to the cross and believe that Christ really does love us. And that, Lord, you would help us to throw off all ungodly, sinful fears that keep us from stepping out in faith for you. Lord, that we would just go step by step and trust you. Lord, I pray that today you might even uh, put a fresh vision and a fresh calling into each of our hearts and that we would take a little step today, just an initial step, Lord, to see what you might do in our lives. Help us to be risk takers, Lord, for the kingdom of God, not fearing because we know that you provide for us. Lord, I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you today, that Jesus, you would call them, that you would give them that tap on the shoulder and that you would say, come, follow me, that they might leave their sins on the edge of the the ocean and go walk with you. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.